Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. People who say they don't want to give up their guns, they don't want change. What do you say to them? I think unless you can give me a real reason why you need it, you don't. You, You don't need it. Honestly, we're asking for less prayers, fewer prayers, fewer words, and more action. This is something that I'm going to carry with me forever. And I'm never going to stop, I don't think, ever. Like, never going to let this go. You are 14 years old, and right now you're wearing a bulletproof vest. Tell me why. Um, I'm wearing a bulletproof vest. On it are all the corporations that are still affiliated with the NRA. I just believe that everything should be more secure. Secure, sorry. That we're being shot and killed, but we're trying to better ourselves. We won't tolerate being scared to come into school. We won't tolerate having to stay out of school because we're scared. We can't Mm. be hunted. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Today was a national school walkout to protest gun violence. It is a month since the uh, terrible shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And today we had thousands and thousands of kids, uh, young adults, walking out of their schools across the country. Uh, I I will say (laughs) there are a few things that immediately jump out at me. One is never before have I seen the media so willing to listen to the opinions of teenagers on national policy. I I don't see it with really anything else that I can think of. You know, usually it's adults make and enforce the laws and teenagers uh, obey them. And adults teach teenagers about the Constitution and the law. But here we have a movement of children, young adults, adolescents who are being used for obvious political purposes by one side of the political aisle. As I have told you from the beginning It was clear that leftist activist groups were involved in this. It was clear that there was astroturfing going on, that this was not some grassroots movement without any involvement. You had organizers from the Women's March and other groups, and I can't even keep up with all of them, who have reached out to these kids. CNN, I don't know if they're going to be violating child labor laws, but they might as well give some of these kids a contributor contract. I don't know if they're even allowed to do that, but they probably should because they keep uh, putting them on TV and treating them like they are experts. And this is where the breakdown happens. You see, they're really trying to silence you and intimidate you by putting forward victims and claiming that if you oppose what those victims are promoting as policy now, you're a bad person. If you don't, give way to the arguments of kids in this case, then clearly you 
are unfeeling, uncaring, and to borrow from some of the most famous of these child activists, you support the NRA, which is a terrorist organization, they say, and terrorizes children. This is a national media embarrassment for sure. Look, do these kids know better? Do they think they're doing a good thing? Tough to tell. You got to look at it on an individual case and depends on what they're saying and how they're saying. it. But saying that the First Amendment applies to kids and they have a voice and all this is just all a smokescreen. This is moral blackmail on a massive scale. You have school districts that are spending money to bust these kids to protests. This has now become like a school activity. Uh, That just goes to show you, goes to show you the uh, leftist bent of most of the teachers' unions and a lot of teachers in these school systems in public school. And this is not going to advance policy. It won't advance the argument. Is it, can you make, can you make claims about how this is good? There's activism, you know, it's, we got an engaged citizenry. Sure. Yeah. Is this exercising the First Amendment? Yeah, but everything is exercising the First Amendment, right? I mean, come on. Some crazy guy on the, on the corner who's telling me the world is going to end as he's standing on a bunch of cardboard boxes. Well, he's just exercising the First Amendment. It doesn't mean I have to think he's right or respect what he's saying. These are all canards. These are all red herrings. They're smoke screens, as I said. And you'll notice that there aren't a lot of, aren't a lot of kids appearing on TV who have a different take on this. They are hand-picking which students get the national media platforms. They are deciding who will be the voice of this movement, and it is overwhelmingly along partisan lines. And the demonization of the NRA and and the threats that I've even seen from people online uh, about or directed toward people from the NRA are appalling. They are absolutely appalling. But you've got waves of these students walking out across the country. It allows the media to uh, pat itself on the back. It allows them to act like they're giving a voice to the voiceless here, whatever. All the cliches apply. But we're also quite aware of the fact that there are adults who see advantage in all this. There are adults who see that using children as pawns in a political battle is a is a an effective tactic. Right. Because if you're going to push back against the messaging, you're being mean. If you point out that these kids don't know anything about firearms law or quite honestly, law or the Constitution. Because I'm hearing what they're saying and most of them don't. And I wouldn't expect them to. They're kids. But there's something strange about putting forward young people who don't have the experience or knowledge to debate national issues with any real capability and to put them in positions where not only are they to be listened to, they're not supposed to be criticized, which is part of this whole thing. If you come out too strongly against us, I called it a puppet show earlier in the week when they keep putting these kids on TV and Oh, gosh, people got so mad at me. What do you think this is? CNN adults, CNN producers, see some kid who suffered a trauma. Was that one of these? Was it was that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? And they put them on TV and all of a sudden they're saying that, you know, this politician's owned by the NRA and this person is a total hack who's 
got blood on his hands because he took NRA donations, and they're just being little attack dogs. That's not okay. It's not acceptable. But anything goes. Anything goes. So uh, the the conversation, I suppose, will continue. I saw today on, on the cover of the, the Huffington Post, uh, they were using the hashtag enough. I wonder if they've formally switched from hashtag never again, which is meant to evoke the the Holocaust. Uh, and maybe they've moved on to hashtag enough. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, but I do know that these kids don't understand gun policy. They don't understand criminology. They don't understand how violence in the statistics with violence in school, a vast majority of it occurs outside of school. By orders of magnitude, exponentially more violence occurs outside of school. That's where students are most likely to be armed by each other and by non-students. And most of the violence has nothing to do with a deranged school shooter. It's drug-related. It's gang-related. But that's not what we're talking about here. This, this is specifically meant to mobile this is meant to mobilize a group of students for the purpose of fundraising for the left passing legislation against the second amendment and creating some issue for the democrats to push going into the midterms of course the problem they're going to run into is that gun control is not popular in places where they need to run toward the they need to run centrists they need to run Carbon copies, if they can, of what just happened in Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania's 18th district, which was won by the Democrat. I mean, he's has the other guy conceded yet, by the way. Has he conceded? No, he hasn't conceded. Right. OK, so it's in the 600 vote range right now. Oh, another thing. Anytime somebody ever tells you that voter fraud doesn't matter or they no, they usually start with voter fraud doesn't happen. And then you do a Google search and they say, well, someone just went to prison for it last week. And they say, OK, well, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't happen that much. When you have congressional elections that are coming down to literally hundreds of votes. It's pretty clear that it matters. It's pretty clear that even a very small fraction of votes cast being fraudulent or in any way tampered with could change the outcome. Um, but that's a, that's uh, another place we'll have to go and discuss. Oh, I mentioned the adults. We'll talk more about where the adults come down here on using this movement for their own purposes, on pushing narratives that they find politically convenient and how ultimately they won't address the truth. And it's one that I tell you here on the show. School shootings are have been going down for decades. Children are incredibly safe in schools. We do not need to do all these things that people are saying we have to do. We need a baseline of competence from law enforcement, which we usually have. But in this case of the Stoneman Douglas shooting, we did not. A baseline of competency, open communication, and maybe some tightening of open communication between the schools and law enforcement, and then some tightening of the background check system. This is not a modern pandemic. This is not an urgent plague. This has now become, from a policy perspective, overblown. For every student that walked out today because they wanted to honor the memories of you know, fellow students that were lost at Stoneman Douglas High School, or that they did this as a form of, of mourning and community gathering, great, God bless. But for those who are saying we need to change the Constitution of the United States because they say so, 
because of what happened. I'm sorry, but they don't have enough wisdom or experience on the subject matter to influence my opinion, and I know they're not influencing yours either. And this is not the way that we should be debating issues of national importance in this country. It's a sham what the Democrats are doing. All right, we've got a a packed show. I'm going to talk to you about the passing of Stephen Hawking later on. Uh, We're also going to discuss that the U.K. has expelled 23 diplomats uh, from its shores, Russian diplomats, in response to the Novichok poisoning. And what else have I got for you? A whole lot of stuff. We'll have Hillary making an appearance later. Oh, I have a follow-up on the, the French bulldog that died in the overhead bin because of a, a stupid airline employee. We, we, we'll get it. That just, I, wa- I read it last night. I read the details. I saw the photo, too, and it disturbed me. It really made me mad. And you can say that's not rational, Buck. You're reading stories about terrible wars and things all the time, and I know that's true, but I don't know. That, the photo of that Frenchie really really hit home. It made me, uh, made me sad. So we'll talk about that because there's a bigger lesson about airlines that we should draw from what happened on that plane where somebody's pet was forced into an overhead bin where it slowly suffocated. Uh, we will we will talk more about that. And uh, obviously your thoughts. Welcome as well. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. If you can't call but you want to tweet, I am at Buck Sexton on Twitter, and I'm a lean, mean tweeting machine, including during the show and after. And at 2 a.m. when I can't sleep. So get on the Twitter. We'll be right back. What do we want gun control? When do we want it now? Governor Andrew Cuomo was with them in that one, right? So the governor of New York State. They're demanding gun control. Folks, there's already so much gun control. The way that this whole debate is framed is dishonest. They're claiming that they just want common sense gun control. We already have all kinds of gun control. And I don't mean like trigger finger discipline. I'm talking about all the laws that are, which I know for a lot of you are like, that is gun control, Buck. But I'm talking about laws that are in place that govern the sale and transfer and storage and carriage and use. And you know, there's a whole canon, pardon the expression, of law around guns. And in a place like New York, they do it in a way that it's supposed to make it complicated, it's supposed to make it difficult. Um, and there's all kinds of, onerous restrictions in place on the Second Amendment already, restrictions that they would never dream of bringing about at a similar level for other constitutionally protected rights. Because they just flatly don't view the Second Amendment as a a constitutionally protected right. They think it is a, a quaint anachronism and that it's evil and that it needs to go. They flatly do not believe that the right to bear arms is in the Constitution, and they are using children now to make that argument for them. Uh, It's not the first time, but this time around they have 
harnessed their powers of organizing for this purpose. And none other than uh, Chuck Schumer, for example, joined in. I mean, you got these adults joining in the student chants. No surprise. Schumer. Here's what he had to say. Now, everyone's I've been through these wars. I am the author of the Brady Law and the assault weapons ban. The NRA, the NRA has made me public enemy number one, and I'm proud of it. And together, we're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. I mean, what kind of bullcrap chant is that? We're going to win what exactly? We're going to ban more guns in New York State? There's already all kinds of bans in place for New York State. We're going to eliminate... The right to bear arms nationwide, that's never going to happen. That's, well, not going to happen anytime soon, at least. If they keep pushing, I'm sure they think that they can change perception enough that over time they might be able to get what they want with this. But it is, uh, it is distressing, nonetheless, to see all this happening. It's very, as I've been telling you, it's very Alinsky, though. It's all about mobilization. Make activism a social activity. Make activism seem fun and cool and hip. And then people become activists and then they want to keep going. It's like a party where you get to feel good about yourself. Like a fun party, not a political party. You know? And then they're hoping that they'll have these networks in place for the midterms and that they'll have people that rise up to get others to vote and to believe that they're giving them a message that's important, that's powerful. That's what this whole game is. It's not going to change anything. I do want to talk to you, though, about something else that has begun to uh, make its way into the conversation. And I raise it here with you. It had to do with the Broward Sheriff's Department, Broward County Sheriff's Department policies when it came to arresting juveniles. It turns out that there was really something to it. I talked to you here on the show about it. But the Obama administration, through the Department of Education, decided that there needed to be some social justice adjustments to how schools discipline teenagers and how quickly they report it to law enforcement. And they claim that there is racial disparity in the system, and therefore they had to change the way the system was giving out discipline. Well, we will dive into that together after this, because I think it's going to be eye-opening. Investigation will continue unofficially, despite the GOP shutting it down. That's the banner up on CNN as we were on the air. What a shock. <laughs> it's, it's classic. So they're going to continue an investigation that's not really an investigation, but that way they can still pretend like it's an investigation. Yay. This is what the Democrats do. All right, I promise you that to talk about this school discipline policies of the Obama administration. Now, remember, and this is something that's easy, is easy to lose sight of. And I don't have children yet, so I don't deal with any school system, really. I just read about them a lot. But I've been to school. Um, but the Obama administration was willing to throw its political muscle around via the Department of, of Education on a pretty regular basis. The Obama team, if you remember, even threatened to cut off Funding for, I believe it was North, but it might have been South Carolina uh, schools 
if they did not acquiesce to the new Department of Education guidelines on transgender students and bathroom usage. They were going to, they threatened to cut funding, folks, for public schools unless they allowed teenage boys to use the bathroom that they prefer of teenage girls and vice versa. So that was one time when you saw the politics of the Obama administration played out through the prism of the public school system. Uh, And that's important to remember. But there was another part of the Obama administration that was prominent. All things social justice. Obama was really a social justice warrior president. Obama was somebody who believed deeply in using the power of the government in a somewhat arbitrary fashion in order to benefit disadvantaged groups at the expense of so-called advantage groups. In social justice parlance of today, we'd call this addressing white privilege, for example. But in in the specific case of the school system, there was a theory that Obama and his Department of Education and others put into practice of what they called the school-to-prison pipeline, and that there was too much arresting of high school, particularly minority high school students going on, that that created an environment where there would be further arrests and they'd be pulled out of school. And the problem was the arrest, not the behavior. And then even before that, they would say that minority students were punished more severely for, and this is an important, for the same infraction, that's always the claim, for the same infraction, they're punished much more severely than their non-minority counterparts, particularly that black students are punished more harshly in school by teachers and administrators than white students are for the same offense. That's the claim. Now, here's a discussion between the former head of Vice. I think he's just out as of recently. I've always thought Vice was just all smoke and mirrors. I've said this to you, I think, before on the show. Vice is like a bunch of hipsters telling you about the news, but pretending they don't really care much about the news. They've got a book of slam poetry that they're compiling that's much more meaningful to them, right? I mean, it's there's always this annoying, insouciant, look at me, I'm Standing on the DMZ of North Korea, but like I don't, re- I don't really care, man. I'm doing Vice, hard hitting journalism. Uh, but the the f- co founder and former head of Vice was sitting down with Obama to talk about this. This was a few years ago, but this is a good basic, ver- a good basic definition of what this whole prison of pipeline thing is. Is the criminal justice system in America racist? The system, every study has shown, is biased somewhere institutionally in such a way where uh, an African-American youth is more likely to be suspended from school than a white youth for engaging in the same disruptive behavior. More likely to be arrested, more likely to be charged, more likely to be prosecuted aggressively, more likely to get a stiffer sentence. Uh, The system tilts in a direction that Uh, is unjust. The statistics are so skewed. You have to question uh, whether we have become numb to the cost that it has on uh, these communities. Okay, Uh, so you you get the idea, but notice he says 
more likely to be suspended, more likely to be prosecuted for the same offense. And the New York Times wrote a piece about this recently. Trump finds unlikely culprit in school shootings, Obama discipline policies. Uh, This article has the unintended effect of confirming everything that I had read before and come to conclusions about with regard to the Broward County Sheriff's Department and how it was interacting with high school students and also just how the SJW attitude of the Obama administration had permeated throughout the school system in a way that was really destructive. Um, Because when you look at this piece, there are a lot of, I mean, first of all, they, they talk about the uh, the rethink uh, discipline program, um, which is the the uh, the Trump Commission will examine includes guidelines that the Obama administration issued on the legal limitations on the use of restraints and seclusion, corporal punishment, and equity for special education students. So rethink discipline was what they uh, called this from the Obama administration and. The 2014 discipline guidelines that were given out. So they actually had guidelines on this. And what they were claiming was some of what I told you, which is that uh, student uh, based on how they're writing this and compiling statistics, they say students of color are singled out and more harshly punished than their uh, than their white counterparts. There's a few things that just automatically jump out to me about this claim. And I'm going to translate all this in a moment into why we care in the context of the school shootings in general and and the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting in particular in a second here. But the notion that being punished for the same infraction. There's no way to statistically account for this, but there's also no way to line up exactly. Is this a student that is we're talking about things like disruptions in classrooms or maybe, you know, cursing or. Any teacher listening to this knows, and I was a, I was a soccer coach, right? So I wasn't a teacher, but I, I worked in a school for a period of time and had to deal with kids. And I had overwhelmingly super diligent, well-behaved, great kids. But even in that scale, there were the kids that I dealt with who had a, you know, consistently a little bit of an attitude, a little bit of a disciplinary, pro- disciplinary problem. And there were the kids who maybe once in a while would get a little out of sorts, but they generally weren't a problem. Now, I knew that there was a line sometimes that if any of them crossed, I'd have to actually, you know, bench them for a game or, you know, I had to do that a couple of times or if they were being, you know, rowdy or if they were getting into it because these were high school age kids. If they were, you know, saying they're going to fight someone on the other team, things like that would happen. I'd have to step in and, and cut that off right away and there would have to be discipline there. But, you know, the kid that did it two or three times or the kid that was close to doing it a few times was going to be more harshly punished by me than the kid who, you know, just one time got a little heated during the game. And I'm trying to translate, trying to take that and put it in the context of a classroom. I'm sure it's the same thing with teachers. You see, I, I don't believe that teachers in the public school system are inherently racially biased in the way that the New York Times, the Obama administration's Department of Education and others assume. I just don't believe it. And the statistics alone can't uh, can't be used to say that, well, there's a, there's a disparate impact on minority students in these schools. Because the reality of crime statistics in this country are that there's a disparate impact am- among the African-American community of of homicides, for example. 
There are more African-Americans per capita killed in homicides, and there are more African-Americans per capita that commit homicides. Now, there's very complicated uh, socioeconomic reasons and, you know, and, and discussions to be had around that issue. But there's clearly a difference in the per capita incidence of violent crime in the African-American community, community than the rest of the country. That there is a difference in school discipline as well is something that should be a conversation, not something that is de facto or, or on its face treated as racism, which is what they're saying, which is what they're doing. Now, the way that, so that's one level of this, the way that the schools under the Obama administration decided to deal with this was, and now you're going to start seeing the how Broward County factors into this, was, well, you know, don't arrest kids. Give them more written warnings. Let, be, sl- be slower to turn them over to police. Don't don't take school behavior that's criminal and necessarily assume you have to call law enforcement. See if you can handle it internally. See if the school's disciplinary policies will deal with it first. Now, I've met a lot of teachers in my life. I've never met a teacher who would relish the idea, who would look forward to calling police on one of his or her students ever, ever. So the notion that the Department of Education thinks that it should be telling teachers and administrators, you know, be slower to call the cops as a means of dealing with the problem is exactly the wrong way to deal with the problem. Letting kids get away with more behavior that is borderline up to and including criminal is not a way of increasing or improving discipline. It's just a way for administrators and in some cases law enforcement to change the numbers and look like they're being less discriminatory. In the case of the Parkland school shooting, what we know is that the Broward County Sheriff's Office was giving a lot of cita- a lot of written warnings and citations to kids for what would have gotten them previously arrested. And the, the theory here, it's not proven, but the theory is that with someone like Nicholas Cruz, you have a student who was in an ecosystem where behavior was much less likely to result in arrest and a visit from law enforcement and much more likely to be just bounced around the school system and, you know, he's eventually expelled. But there was a softer line taken by authority in Broward County, which was responsible for safety of those students at Parkland. And there's a way to take that thread and have it all the way at the top from President Obama himself on down. Less discipline in schools, the prison, the, the school to prison pipeline, which is just a bogus theory that they have created to explain away many difficult socioeconomic issues that are happening in schools and pretending that there's no disparity issues in discipline, that it's all just institutional racism. That's what they're saying. And that may have had very, very tragic consequences when it filtered all the way down to the level of, say, Stoneman Douglas High School and how administrators, teachers, and others felt they should be dealing with problem students across the board minority or otherwise. But this is something we will continue to revisit. It's, but it, it just comes from the flawed theory of, of the social justice warriors, which is if there is a, and remember, you have to remember disparate impact as well. That's a theory that says that if it affects one group more than another, it must be wrong if that group is disadvantaged, even if it's based on action and sound law. As I've said to you, there's a disparate impact of violent crime, too. What do we do about that? You're going to not enforce the law? I don't think so. 
All right, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. Also have a concern when we talk about this, of the impact of, ha- of having armed teachers as it relates to African-American and Hispanic students. And here's why I say that. There is an overwhelming body of evidence that shows that harsh disciplinary protocols <coughs> disproportionately impact children of color. Do you have any concern about a policy that would result in arming teachers and the concern that we should make sure that if something like that were to occur, that there would be training around implicit bias? So that's uh, Kamala Harris. Talking about this. So she's saying implicit bias will mean the teachers shoot more minority students if they're armed in schools. This this theory continues and it it permeates so much of the policymaking around school safety, doesn't it? Herb in New Jersey, what do you think, my friend? Uh, well, first of all, let me say shields high, Buck. Shields um, high, Herb. Thank like you. you. Like you, I'm calling BS uh, on this entire uh, narrative that tries to take the focus off of truth and reality when you're talking about keeping our kids safe while they're in school um you know i don't care how many tools of violence you try to make illegal uh people who are contemplating uh a crime are going to obtain whatever tool they find necessary uh, by any means necessary. And, and what you're really uh, talking about here, if you're serious about wanting to keep our kids safe, is trying to keep a shield between them and the evil that promotes violence. A physical shield is the only thing that's going to protect our children because, um, well, here's a perfect example. Uh, there's a story going around uh, the Internet in the last 24 hours about a uh, situation that, that, that occurred in California where uh, a student made some threats on social media. The police investigated. They found uh, several weapons and ammunition in the possession uh, of this uh, child in their home. Um, they arrested them and um, charged them with uh, unlawful possession um, and uh, averted any potential violence in that child's school because they put up a shield. They, they investigated. Yeah, well, law enforcement did its job there. I mean, law enforcement in Parkland clearly uh, was, unfortunately, asleep at the wheel. Herb, thank you for calling in from uh, New Jersey. I want to get to Bill in West Virginia before we have to go to the next hour. Bill, good to have you. Hi, thanks for thanks for taking my time your time there. Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about Chuck Schumer. He opens his big mouth in that, and uh, what's he got to say about the Obama and Eric Holder Fast and Furious stuff? You know, the government broke the law there. We got gun laws, and they broke the gun laws in that. How many of these guns are, are available from Mexico coming back here to cause these problems? Yeah, I mean Chuck Schumer's the worst. So there's that can't understand that why don't the people start shoving it the republicans start shoving that back in his face and that you know it, it just dumbfounds me yeah i hear you bill thank you for calling in my friend shield tie um yeah schumer oh gosh we'll talk a little bit about the party of pelosi and schumer and how this win that lamb had in uh pennsylvania's 18th district is not indicative of some big 
wave coming for the Democrats unless the, all the Democrats can get away with pretending to basically not be Democrats in the midterm election. Th- then they'll have something special. Good to that. And then also some rumblings out of the FBI and some possible retribution against the deep state. What am I talking about? Got to stay with me. I start every day the same way. I get my Black Rifle coffee and I chug it. Black Rifle is absolutely delicious. And unlike other coffee companies, this isn't some faceless conglomerate of left-wing activists that are trying to make you overpay for whatever beans they've thrown together. These are patriots. They're members of the U.S. veteran community, and they really believe in liberty, America, and building a great business. Black Rifle Coffee is delicious. They are premium, small batch, and roast to order. You need to try it. They're going to become your coffee company. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Use the coupon code buck15. That's buck15 for 15% off. You can get a subscription service sent to you each month. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Coupon code buck15 for 15% off. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Saxon Show. Hour two is here. It is here. It is exciting. It is good to be with you, my friends, fellow patriots, freedom hut dwellers. So we had a, a little bit of a loss. Not a, not a big deal, but Sacone, hey, Sacone. I like to say, I like to do like the old country, Sacone, not the Sacone Americanized stuff, you know? What do you, was he going to order spaghetti with red sauce ne- next? It's spaghetti marinara. But nonetheless, you had Sacone against lamb. I have nothing funny. I'm going, bah. I got nothing to say about lambs, you know. I can't think of anything clever about that one. But lamb won, or as I'm seeing some of the various female pundits I know say, the cute one won. Oh, well, isn't that nice? Uh, or at least he's declared victory and he's 600 votes or so ahead. And, and we have some audio from the cute one. Play it. Lamb is a political unicorn, essentially. He's running oh, as no, a this is Mark Democrat Thesis. who is pro-gun, <laughs> pro-fracking, anti-Pelosi, okay. refuses to uh, We, we uh, were hoping right. No, 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 no stop, 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 stop. Let's, let's play Mr. Connor Lamb. What, what he said, not that Mark Thiessen's not great, but do we not have, I thought we had some Lamb talking. Oh, Paul Ryan talking about Lamb. I misread the cut sheet, my friends. Live radio is a crazy thing. Let's hear from Paul Ryan. I think the candidate that's going to win this race is the candidate that ran as a pro-life, pro-gun, anti-Nancy Pelosi conservative. That's the candidate that's going to win this race. So this is something that you're not going to see repeated because they didn't have a primary. They were able to pick a candidate who could run as a conservative, uh, who ran against uh, the minority leader who ran on a conservative agenda. Um, you will have primaries in all these other races, and the primaries bring bring them to the left. So I just don't think that this is something they're going to be able to see a repeat of. I agree with Paul Ryan's analysis here. You, you, can't, you can't pull a lamb in all these other districts because you're going to be running people that are essentially saying, me too, I'm just a Republican too, I'm, I'm close to this other guy. It's not going to be enough. There's just no way. And... Then you add in the whole thing that people in the political chattering class like to talk about midterms, the year of the midterm, like the whole year. 
But so much is going to change between now and then. Things like, how's the economy doing? People are saying this is a referendum on Trump. Well, what's Trumpism looking like in five or six months? Right? That'll be very, very different. Or, yeah, five or six months. So that will all change. So this is not a referendum on anything. It just shows that. Oh, I would note yesterday I was a little confused. We're talking to Selena Zito, who is from the district and knows this district, PA 18, very, very well. I was like, wait, why did I think that Lamb was? Ah, Lamb is one of these politicians who says he is personally pro-life, but will always vote pro-choice. See, that's how far he's willing to go. Uh, That's how far he's willing to go in order to appeal to Republican centrist voters, right? That's what he's willing to do. Or, or sorry, Democrat centrist voters is to say, oh, well, I'm with you. I mean, you know, I'm life is sacred, but I'm going to vote for abortion. This is the head fake. This is exactly what Democrats do time and again. It's not new. It's not a surprise. And the fact that this guy was able to, you know, with a good resume and a square jaw and a good TV appearance and all that was able to defeat uh, uh, Saccone is not not a huge shock. Um, not a huge shock. Uh, so that's I don't think there's any major national level anything to take out of this. So I just want to put that I want to put that aside for a moment I, I, or not put it aside for a moment. I want to put it aside. I think it's just the local. It's going to be a different district in the fall. He's literally going to be running in a different district. So how's it going to look? Who knows? Who knows? The biggest thing I had from all this or the biggest takeaway for me is that Hundreds of votes can change an election. It is not hard to think of a situation where there might be hundreds of either intentionally or unintentionally illegally cast votes. Not hard to think of that at all, right? Not some, it doesn't require a huge elaborate fraud to have a few hundred votes go one way or the other. In fact, there have been elections where that was the margin of, uh, the margin of victory and plenty of reason to believe that uh, there were there were shenanigans. All right, now switching gears for a moment here because this is going to be this is going to be something that really sets the media alight. They are going to freak out about this. NBC News reporting: Sessions, the Attorney General, whom uh, I will note we had calling into the show this week because he's uh, he likes the Freedom Hut. You know, the guy's very smart individuals, patriot, likes how we roll in the hut. You know what I mean? I get, so I give Sessions credit for that. On top of it, he may fire top FBI official Andrew McCabe before his pension eligibility. So people who think that McCabe retiring early, oh, there's nothing they can do now. Nope. There's something they can do that would sting pretty bad. Pretty badly. I know. Adverb. People are going to get mad at me. No improper grammar on air, Buck. The FBI's Office of Professional Responsibility has recommended the firing of former Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who remains on the payroll, a move that could put his pension at risk, according to officials familiar with the process. It is now up to Attorney General Jeff Sessions, our friend, uh, whether to reverse that recommendation or to accept it. Why would McCabe get fired after a long and distinguished career at the DOJ? Oh, for leaking information to reporters and for lying to investigators about doing so. Now, let's just take a moment, shall we? 
if you are a senior Department of Justice official, you know the law pretty well, I'd assume. At least with regard, I'm not saying you uphold it all the time, but you at least know what the law is. You should know what the law is. And you would also know what would put you in professional and ethical jeopardy. Why? Why, oh why, would you, if you are Andy McCabe, acting director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, why would you take this risk and leak to reporters unless one of two things were true, both of which are very important for our discussions going forward of all the Russia collusion investigation stuff? One... You are sure that you will not get into trouble because the rest of the people around you will have your back because they're with you. They agree with you. They're anti-Trumpers. And so you're going to be OK. And maybe depending on what, what the timeline is here, maybe you figured Hillary was going to win. And so that's why you were willing to engage in all this because you knew if Hillary won and you were part of helping her win, everything was going to be cool. Right. The other option is you are so ideologically rabid in your opposition to Trump that you would risk your career and your pension in order to try and take Trump down. When we're talking about the deep state, my friends, when we discuss former Obama administration officials or just senior government officials and their willingness to go above and beyond to stop Trump and help Hillary, this goes right in to that box. This is what we are just, this is what we're talking about. Someone who has spent decades working for the FBI, putting bad guys away, knows the law backwards and forwards, and would get in trouble for leaking to reporters at the very, very, very end of his career. This gives you a sense of the severity of the problem of the deep state at DOJ and FBI. It also proves that it was very, very real. And I have to wonder if he's in trouble for this, what would happen if there was an independent investigation looking at, say, Sally Yates, looking at Peter Strzok, looking at Bruce Orr, all these different figures that we've become familiar with in the Russia collusion investigation, FBI side, DOJ lawyer side, Someone leaked information to the newspapers to get General Flynn and committed a felony in doing so. I think we have a pretty small list of people that are likely suspects. And if you can see the acting FBI director putting so much on the line for the pro-Hillary anti-Trump cause... What can you not see some of his compatriots, some of his fellow travelers in the FBI and the DOJ doing for the same end? Remember this one and keep an eye on what happens with Sessions and this decision. We'll be back in a few. The United Kingdom will now expel 23 Russian diplomats who have been identified as undeclared intelligence officers. They have just one week to leave. This will be the single biggest expulsion for over 30 years. We're here today to discuss the use of a chemical weapon by one council member in the territory of another council member. Let me make one thing clear from the very beginning. The United States stands in absolute solidarity with Great Britain. 
The United States believes that Russia is responsible for the attack on two people in the United Kingdom using a military-grade nerve agent. Dozens of civilians and first responders were also exposed. There you have U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley and someone who I actually thought was a, li- a likely replacement at one point for Rex Tillerson, but maybe that'll wait till term two. Uh, but Nikki Haley calling Russia out for the poisoning of a former Russian intelligence officer who had defected. We don't really use that term anymore. I don't know why. When you leave your country and take up residence in another because you've you've been a turncoat, you've traded one country for the other. I feel like defection is the right term. But in this case, look, he defected from the bad guys to the good guys. So we'll take it. Right. That's good. Um, but the Russians tried to poison him with Novichok. Uh, and they did this so that we would know. Uh, Skripal is the name of the individual they tried to poison and his daughter. And it's now believed that the uh, the chemical was wiped on the handle of his car door. And there are, let me just say, there are much easier and more effective ways to eliminate someone if, if that was, in fact, the, uh, the goal. This reminds me of the poisoning of uh, Litvinenko, who was given a um, radioactive isotope years ago, if you remember. Um, he was another person who was in a very similar fashion in 2006, uh, was poisoned with polonium radiation syndrome or acute radi- uh, polonium induced acute radiation syndrome. So the Russians do this. They'll go after people. We know this all over the world. And now it's a question of what will we do in response? The UK, uh, the UK has banished. I believe it's 23 was the number. That's right. 23 Russian diplomats suspected of intelligence activities. There's a lot of like what countries know and what they pretend not to know and what they'll turn a blind eye to. And this is all, you know, diplomatic and spook and spy stuff that gets wrapped into these conversations. Uh, But we've expelled 23 Russian diplomats. And there's some other things that are being done. You know, they're going to seize any assets in the UK that they think may be used for the purposes of uh, illicit activities there, things like that. But it's not really going to strike fear into the hearts of uh, Putin and his his top folks, right? We all know that. Um, And it's because at at some level, and I'm just going to say it, and I don't know if you've heard anyone else say it, but I'm just going to come out and say it. At some level, it is the case that you can't touch one of ours. And, you know, in the U.K., you can't touch one of theirs. But we have a different set of rules for how we deal with the Russians when they deal with their former, you know, their former folks. Which is weird when you think about it, right? Because if you're in the U.K. and you have residency, you should be treated as a, as a U.K. national for all intents and purposes, but here we we look at it a little differently. I will say this. If, for example, the Russians had uh, smeared this Novichok on the door handle of a prominent American critic of Putin, we'd have we'd have a big problem. Right. We would have uh, reprisals in mind that would uh, go well beyond, I think, the t- expulsion of 23 diplomats, which is the most diplomats the U.K. Is, has kicked out in in decades. 
Uh, but we think of these things a little bit differently. And I just want to note that these are the kind of the unspoken rules in international diplomacy and international espionage that they exist and we kind of know they exist, but we don't talk about them all that much. I mean, Nikki Haley uh, spoke more about this. And, and like I said, she's calling the Russians out for sure. The Russians complained recently that we criticized them too much. If the Russian government stopped using chemical weapons to assassinate its enemies, and if the Russian government stopped helping its Syrian ally to use chemical weapons to kill Syrian children, and if Russia cooperated with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons by turning over all information related to this nerve agent, we would stop talking about them. We take no pleasure in having to constantly criticize Russia. But we need Russia to stop giving us so many reasons to do so. And here's a little more unconventional thinking these days. Maybe, just maybe, we should consider reserving criticism for Russia for things like this and not running around having our media and one of our two political parties pretending that the Russians threw the last election. And creating all this fear-mongering and scare-mongering and paranoia around Putin and his plans to intervene in our next election. I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm just saying it's not the big problem that people have been pretending it is. And they've been doing it for very obvious partisan reasons. But it does start to sound a bit like noise coming from us. The Russians do have a point. We do complain about them a lot. And a lot more than we should have over the last 18 months or so because we're complaining about, or rather people in this country are complaining about how Hillary lost the election and Russia has been pulled in as a scapegoat on that. And that's embarrassing. And if I were Russia, I'd be mocking us too for that. They have every right to be like, you know what? You know what? This is uh, this need to stop. So in that sense, they are making some sense. And we look at what's going on here and we have to remember that, you know, there's only so many different diplomatic levers. There's only so many things, so many options you have at any point in time to hit back at a bully like Russia. And you do yourself no favors when you become the country that cried wolf. And when we're looking at what's going on with Russia and their machinations in Ukraine, in Crimea, in Syria, as well as their social media meddling and needling of us. Uh, I think that we need to pick our battles. And I mean, the Novichok thing is serious. All right, this is a big deal. Because like I was saying originally, you know, they, they could have just had somebody with a, a silenced pistol or something. Not that that's morally really any different, although it wouldn't have put a lot of other people in jeopardy as this did. But they use Novichok the same reason they use polonium. It's messy it's, a, it's making an example of someone. And if the Russians keep doing this kind of stuff, you know, we, have to, we might have to find a way to make an example, so to speak, of the Russians. And that could get very dangerous. All right, we'll be back with much more. Stay with me, team. I inherit nothing from the Democratic Party. Some people stayed home and some people went third party. The tech revolution really weaponized. If you look at Facebook, news items posted were fake. The Russians, 1,000 Russian agents, the bots, millions of bots. 
Citizens United, then you've got Cambridge Analytica, the Mercers, and Brexit, the Breitbart operation, Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, the John Podesta emails, WikiLeaks, in bed with Guccifer, in bed with DC Leaks, vast right-wing conspiracy, now it's a vast Russian conspiracy. And at some point, it sort of bleeds over into misogyny. Oh, man. Hat tip producer Mike for an amazing montage there. I love it, dude. It's just... There are so many excuses that it's amazing she can rattle them all off over the course of one speech, but she's clearly done a lot of thinking about it. Because Hillary just likes, she's just wandering the woods of Chappaqua, just trying to find herself, just drinking glass after glass of rosé. Because you know Hillary's the kind of savage who drinks rosé year-round. You know that. Totally true. So Hillary is uh, the gift that keeps on giving for the GOP. I really do hope that we are treated to all kinds of of Hillaryisms in the run up to the midterms because I think it's a great reminder for folks of what they avoided. Uh, it really is. She's just going to be showing up and saying, "You could have had me." And everyone's going to be like, "Oh my gosh, you know." I feel like sometimes when I do the Hillary now, it's almost like, "I'm the leprechaun." You know, it is it is that time of year, my friends. St. Patrick's Day. I'm thinking about how that was a movie that I found terrifying when I was a kid, by the way. I used to, I'm going to tell you a true story right now. I used to go into one of my favorite things when my parents were shopping because before I knew how to cook or cared about food other than, you know, I loved Oreos and things like that. Uh, I would go into a, a video rental store next to the grocery store while my parents were in the with my older brother and, and my little brother. There's like a, the three section boys would go in and we'd spend a lot of time, no surprise, in the action movie section and that's how you get into, like, the C-level Dolph Lundgren movies that I would watch, you know. Showdown in Little Tokyo, for example. Oh, I've seen it, and it's bad. You know, I, you go to the whole list. There's another one where Dolph Lundgren stays behind with a bunch of mercenaries, uh, and they, like, help defend a village, and they want mineral rights or something. I mean, it's really—I don't even remember what it was, but I've seen it. If there's a—oh, a C- um, I Come in Peace. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. It's about an alien who shows up. And, uh, yeah, it's also a really, really bad movie. I'm pretty sure Dolph Lundgren's in that one. So, anyway, occasionally, though, I would wander into the horror movie, which I was always very scared of horror movies growing up. I remember I saw Bram Stoker's Dracula and was a little freaked out for a while. I was, like, 10 or 11. That one freaked me out for a while. You know, the Wolfman that he turns into and stuff. That was a little scary. I think it's a pretty good rendition. It's one of Keanu Reeves' kind of, it's lost in the Keanu repertoire, I know Kung Fu, but it's actually a pretty decent movie for what it was. Very um, true to the book, very true to Bram Stoker's novel, which is still I'm a big fan of, big proponent of. Uh, But anyway, I I remember going in and and the Leprechaun movies. I always wanted to rent one, but I never could bring myself to do it when I was a kid because I was just too freaked out. Because Warwick Davis, who plays Willow in the movie Willow, is the same guy who, which is a movie kind of a ripoff of Lord of the Rings that Disney did in the 90s without paying Tolkien anything, I'm sure. And, or maybe they did. And then you had Warwick Davis playing the leprechaun. He's like, I'm the leprechaun. And he like shows up and he cuts people with his long nails. He's really scary looking. And it just freaked me out, man. And then what I found out later on was that, I want you guys, by show of hands, how many leprechaun movies do you think Warwick Davis made? Take a guess. That's right. Five. They made five Leprechaun movies. 
there's that's right there is a leprechaun in the hood movie i have seen some of it you literally have warwick davis dressed as a leprechaun little green hat little little buckle shoes on looks like a pilgrim and he's smoking a blunt in a bathroom of a hip hop club in new york city yeah yes that's a real thing there's leprechaun in space yeah that's another one so that's what I'm thinking about as we get closer to St. Patty's Day. How I never, I've never seen one of the movies to this day. I don't think I can. I think it might, you know, it might still rattle me a little bit. It's like I can't watch the, I've told you before, I can't watch all the way through The Exorcist. And then I lived right next to The Exorcist steps in D.C., which weirded me out. This was supposed to be a segment where I was going to just make fun of Hillary for the whole time. Instead, I started talking about wandering around the uh, bootleg version of Blockbuster when I was a kid. And uh, at least you learned that there were five Leprechaun movies. And fun fact, Jennifer Aniston was. See, I spent a lot of time reading the jacket covers of these things because that's I'd go in the video store and read the jacket covers. Jennifer Aniston was in the first Leprechaun movie. So it's got that going for it. Which is nice. I'm a Jennifer Aniston. I'm a Jennifer Aniston. Although Courtney Cox in the early in the early seasons of Friends, I was actually uh, more a Monica person than a Rachel person. But that's a conversation for another time. All right, we're going to hit a quick break here. We come back. Stephen Hawking passed away. I'll have some thoughts on that for you in just a few. Stephen Hawking passed away today. You're all familiar with him. He is a world-famous astrophysicist and somebody who is considered one of the great geniuses of our time. And I should tell you right at the start that I have tremendous respect for two things. Uh, one is that Stephen Hawking was able to overcome, you know, he was 76 years old when he when he passed away earlier today. Uh, he was able to overcome an unbelievable uh, disability. I mean, a, a tremendous burden where he essentially it's a rare disease. He essentially became par- almost entirely paralyzed. So. Looking at this now, uh, you have to first take into account that this this individual got over tremendous hurdles of his health. And then you add to that that he is able to do, look, I'm a guy who's impressed by people who can do calculus pretty well. You're looking at somebody here who is in a whole other level of mathematical and uh, as a physicist, a whole other level of ability and genius. Complete respect for that. And I am not somebody who's a math guy. So for me, people who can do math, I feel like anybody can sit around and argue stuff. Math, you have to actually know some stuff. Math, you have to be able to do it, and there's a right and wrong answer. And so Hawking is very, very impressive on those two levels. But now I'm going to tell you what I really think about the whole Hawking phenomenon. And this came out, I I saw the movie, The Theory of Everything, uh, with some some other folks years ago, and I remember thinking, one, this movie's really boring, and two, it it presents Stephen Hawking as somebody who is the great genius of our time and has done tremendous things for humanity. When, if you look at the record, if you look at what really happened as a result of Hawking's uh, research and theories, it's it's impressive without being all that important to humanity. Now, I know that's controversial. I know. 
But let's understand the company in which we are talking about Stephen Hawking. You know, people will, will kind of go through this timeline and they'll say something like, you know, there's Isaac Newton and then there's and I'm just skipping around here, you know. Isaac Newton, and then Einstein, and then Hawking. I mean, these are the great mathematical minds and the great uh, theoretical minds of all time. Hawking never won a Nobel Prize. Hawking never won a Fields Medal. And Hawking's theories were about things that don't have any effect on your day-to-day life, really. And in fact, Hawking was wrong on a number of his theories that had to revise them Now, I understand even the most brilliant mind is going to get things wrong sometimes, but he's by no means infallible. And among astrophysicists, this is one of the little secrets out there, he's not even considered best in class of the astrophysicists of the last 50 years or so. You won't study a lot of Hawking if you become a higher... Now, this is from the I do research, not I'm a mathematician file, right? I read about these things. I'm not saying that I understand the math at all. My brother is laughing right now who knows that he had to help me with my math over the years. So, but I I do do a lot of research and I'm somebody who also isn't afraid of taking a contrarian view of things like this. Hawking became a celebrity scientist. That was the overwhelming perception of this guy. When you look at the body of work that he left behind, things like the Big Bang Theory, for example, and all of the work on black holes. This may be really impressive when it's on a chalkboard, or it may be really amazing to mathematically be able to map this stuff out, and it is. How much do black holes affect you? How much has that changed the world around you? And the answer is, it has not. Some scientists discover cures for diseases that save millions of lives, right? I think you you could argue that the, uh, the polio vaccine, for example, or the initial Jonas Salk and the initial... Uh, vaccination trials, different cures for disease that come from antibiotics, all those are much more important. You know, Einstein theory of relativity, what that did for the world, for nuclear power, for nuclear weapons. All, you can look at these things and understand the impact. The Big Bang Theory, it starts with a lot of assumptions and has a lot of questions that it can't answer. It really crosses over from being science into being philosophy. And this is part of why Hawking was so popular around the world. He was supposed to be the genius who was able to explain the origins of life and the world and the universe without taking a deity into account. Hawking is so very popular around the world that has been so celebrated in the media, as I said, in part because of his Tremendous ability and and his overcoming a physical infirmity that it, it, that is inspiring. No question about it. But why was he so beloved? Why is he considered by most people? And I think there's a fair thing to say. If, if somebody had asked folks on the street who were reasonably well informed about the world, who's the smartest person on planet Earth? They would say if they were Democrats, Barack Obama. But if you ask them for the next smartest person on planet Earth, they would probably say Stephen Hawking. Right? The most brilliant man on the planet, the smartest scientist alive. Those are the ideas we have about Hawking. And they really don't stand up when you look at the record. They really exaggerate the contributions of Hawking's research and 
you know, when he starts getting into artificial intelligence and climate change and colonizing other planets and all this stuff, getting beyond his knowledge set, my friends. One of the reasons why he was so beloved was that he was also a reliable, and this is in the media, I mean, he was a reliable leftist, atheist voice backed up by, oh, he's the smartest person on the planet. Now, we don't know who the smartest person on the planet is. How would you even quantify or measure that? But I would just note that if we're going to start throwing that title around, I think it should probably go to someone who did things that changed the world that we live in. And there are people like that. Right? There are people who changed our understanding of how we are interacting in our day-to-day lives, changed the world around us in ways that matter. I don't think Hawking talking about whether or not the singularity, essentially that in a black hole everything could come down and be compressed into one tiny little center of everything, I, I no. We can't explain the vastness of the universe, and we can't we can't really comprehend what a black hole is. We can, we think we can, but we can't. The whole notion of of, of a universe that is infinite defies mathematical explanation. And the beginning of existence, starting with just a whole bunch of things all compressed down and then going boom for just no reason, doesn't make any sense. But this is why he is so beloved. The same reason that Darwin, for all of the flaws and all of the problems in Darwinian theory, which now people say, oh, do you believe that the Earth is 2,000 years old? And they, No, but if you read Darwin, there's... There's, we've learned a lot since Darwin was, you know, hanging out in the Galapagos. It was a while ago, folks. We've learned a lot since then. People look at Darwin as though he had all the answers. Did Darwin know what DNA even was? Did, could Darwin map the human genome? No. No. In fact, the more we look at Darwin's theories, they're convenient for a lot of what the left believes, but... You know, we're talking 19th century here, mid-19th century. Darwin's doing all this stuff. That was, the guy was born over 200 years ago. But he's very useful for certain narratives in present day. So I, I, I don't mean to, I'm not speaking ill of the dead, by the way. And I started off by saying that Hawking is a genius of, of a level that I would never even aspire to. And in terms of his ability... And his uh, the most impressive thing about him, in my opinion, is that he overcame such a debilitating disease. But if you watch the theory of everything, it's kind of boring. It's kind of a boring movie. It's a movie about Stephen Hawking. And you know why? What what pressing world problem does he solve? What change in the world around us did he bring about? Oh, we we think we know how the universe started because of Stephen Hawking. No, we just have a theory about how the universe started because of Stephen Hawking. And then once you get into all the stuff about black holes, sometimes he was right, sometimes he was wrong, sometimes we don't even know. So I think that this is another instance of the left having a tendency to elevate people of science when they are useful as though they are they are the ultimate experts, they are unassailable with their opinions. And so that's why you get Stephen Hawking weighing in and all these things. He doesn't know anything more than the next guy. And, you know, you have, you have this with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson as well. It's the same idea. Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah, knows, knows a lot about 
astronomy. Yeah. Hayden Planetarium here in New York City. You know, knows about. I, I don't care what Neil deGrasse Tyson has to say about gun control. Knows less than I do. Why do I care what he has to say about it? Uh, so this is where I think Hawking also was uh, elevated and was used for a political narrative. So, and like I said, just go back. If It's a boring movie, in my opinion, the theory of everything. It's boring. It's kind of hard to watch. It's not fun. And you, you watch it, and you're like, okay, so this guy overcame some life obstacles. That's very interesting. But what's the great scientific discovery? What's the aha moment? The universe started because of nothing, and we're all going back to nothing. I'm not sure that's really a legacy that is helpful or one that I'd particularly want to celebrate. Because I also don't think that it's true. I'm not a genius, but I think I'm right on this one. We'll be back in a few. The buck is back for hour three here in the Freedom Hut. I am ticked off, my friends. I just want to get that out there right away. I got more details on this story about a mother and her two children flying from Houston to LaGuardia here in New York City. And they were forced to put their French bulldog in the overhead bin where it was whimpering and slowly suffocated to death. There aren't a lot of news stories that I read when I find myself wanting to punch something or just show my my displeasure by destroying property. But this one really sets me off. And it's because it's part of a larger mentality within the airline industry that I think we have to pay some attention to it. Now, first, on the specifics of this incident, if you didn't read about it, the, the mother and her two children were carrying on in a dog carrier, as you're allowed to do, an adorable little French bulldog. And you can bring them with you on the plane. It's allowed as long as they stay in the carrier. And usually they go in the seat in front of you. For some reason, as yet not really clarified, the, the French bulldog was sticking out. The carrier was sticking out a little bit into the aisle. And the stewardess or uh, airline attendant, whatever the proper terminology is, Gosh, Buck, with all your microaggressions. The stewardess said that the dog has to go in the overhead compartment. And I saw this or read this story and thought to myself, something's wrong here. And I don't just mean the insanely aggravating and gut-punching feeling you get when you read the story of a French bulldog that was suffocated to death on a plane for no reason, which is horrible enough. I mean, well, look, one thing about Americans... That really separates us from a lot of other people in the rest of the world. We love our dogs. We're not like, oh, dogs are okay and they have uses. We love our dogs. Full stop. My family here in New York City has, my parents uh, have a French bulldog. So this one really hits home. I mean, I, I love Frenchies. All dogs I'm quite fond of, but any squashy faced dog is a particular, uh, I'm particularly fond of them. But something was not conveyed properly about this story. Either the stewardess is lying or there was some miscommunication. Something had to happen here because people around her say that it was made quite clear that there was a dog in this carrier. And I have a hard time believing that this stewardess would 
put a dog in a carrier in the overhead bin. It's so stupid and reckless and cruel that I have a hard time believing that she would knowingly do it. But then again, how could she not know there was a dog in this bag? I'm sure the woman who's the owner of the dog said there's a dog in the bag. There's just no way. And so what I think happened here and the reason why United is now just realizing what a PR nightmare they have on their hands. What I think they're realizing is that, or what we're realizing, is that the mentality on airplanes and the mentality that the airlines have in general is of brainless authoritarian monopolies. You know, we've gotten used to this, but we don't have to. This notion that when you're up in the sky or even on the tarmac or even in the terminal waiting for your flight, any level of crappy treatment is somehow okay. It's acceptable. Airlines are the most grotesquely run American business that I can think of. And it's really a disgrace. You know, it used to be the cable companies were really terrible. Then Netflix came along and Amazon. And now all of a sudden, cable companies don't say, yeah, you know, we'll show up uh, between the hours of uh, between the hours of uh, 12 p.m. and 9 p.m. At some point, we'll take a 30 minute lunch during the appointment. The appointment may not be honored and we may not reschedule it on site for you. And you're like. Uh, I just want to get my cable fix that you're still charging me for, even though it's out. That's gone away mostly. And cable companies have had to shape up and they generally have. But it's in response to their entire business model being threatened. Right. With airlines, we need improved technology. We need uh, disruptors in the space. We need this to get better because it's just outrageous. You really get a little taste of totalitarianism being on a plane you know you sit where they tell you to sit it's uncomfortable you have no choice your physical comfort is in fact not a concern of theirs the biggest concern by far is their bottom line they tell you where to sit they tell you how to sit they tell you when you can get up they tell you when you can go to the bathroom they tell you to look at me they tell you stupid things you already know they tell you things that are not true like turn off that electronic device it might be problems for us during takeoff it's a lie all this stuff garbage upon garbage upon garbage and even minor transgressions on airplanes are investigated by the FBI actually you know if you get into a fight on an airplane and I know about this from talking to my friends on the prosecutorial side. Uh, guess what? It is most likely going to be the FBI that's waiting for you at the airport. You know, if you do anything that's really bad on an airplane, the FBI is going to be waiting for you. So I'm not suggesting that airplanes should be some Wild West where everyone can just get up, smoke cigarettes, do whatever it is they want to do. But I am suggesting that there's a mentality on the air with the airlines across the board from the from the way they price tickets the booking of tickets the way they construct the seats and the planes and everything it is just done with maximum exploitation of the customer and minimum redress for anything that they do to you you know they can lose your bags you know that's your problem they can delay you six hours it's your problem they can hold you in the tarmac for hours at a time it's your problem it is a little taste of totalitarianism every time you get on a plane and it just 
doesn't have to be that way. And it's only because of that culture, in my opinion, that you could have a, a functioning adult take a dog and put it into a compartment where it is sure to suffocate slowly to death. It's only because the airlines have this idea of, you know, you do what we say when we say it or else. You know, no one's saying you can go in there and hang out with the pilots in the cockpit and steer the plane for a bit yourself. But some semblance of common sense and normalcy and reality would be nice. You know, it doesn't have to be a flying penal colony up there all the time where you're told exactly what you can do, what you can eat, where you can go. I mean, it just it's crazy the regulations they have in place. I mean, there was a time until recently, my friends, when they were saying that you couldn't have a Kindle and read it because maybe the, elect- the, the electronic device would interfere with their communications. That's, that's insane. By the way, it's not like they pat you down and check you for Kindles when you go on the plane. So if you left it on or left it off, they have no idea. That's what I mean. The rules are dumb. The rules are dumb. Not all of them, but a lot of them are really, really stupid. And the way that the airlines act is with a tremendous degree of arrogance because they're just unaccountable. They know that people go on, you know, Priceline or Expedia or one of these sites, they want the cheapest, easiest flight that they can get. And they'll try to cram themselves into these horrifically uncomfortable little seats. Think of another business that over the last 30 years has gotten worse in basically every regard. I don't think you can. Maybe you could argue, well, no, because healthcare advances. I mean, it's gotten a lot more expensive, but I don't think you can find one where you are paying a lot. You know, airline tickets feel as expensive today as they felt when I was a kid. So you're paying a lot of money. The seats are crap and uncomfortable. Legroom has, this is actually a fact, Legroom has actually gotten less on many of the major carriers than it was decades ago. So they are squeezing you in there like sardines. And the staff is trained to think that they're all a bunch of air marshals up there. You know, you cannot go to the bathroom. The pilots have the thing. You know, you know, I'll sign something. If we do happen to hit some terrible pocket of turbulence and I hit my head on the ceiling, you know, I'll sign something. That's on me. All right. I want to get up and go to the bathroom when I want to get up and go to the bathroom. I just think we've all had it. You know, we've all had it with all the airline personnel or first and foremost concern with their safety. There's just a lot of. A lot of disregarding of what it feels like to be strapped into one of these giant metal flying prisons that they put us in for a few hours at a time. And I'm sick of it. And I, you know, United had the problem last year with dragging the guy off the plane. Remember, he paid for his seat, but they said, no, we want to give it to one of our people. So you don't actually have any real rights. We're just going to take that seat away. You know, maybe that guy was heading for a job interview. I mean, he wasn't, but maybe he was on a really important trip for him for whatever reason. United just saying, sorry, we we have the right to just take you off the plane that you paid for because we want someone else to ride in your seat. I mean, that's United Airlines. And don't tell me this is what the market will allow, what the market will say, or the market speaks. Uh Uh-uh. These things operate with a tremendous amount of regulation in place. It's all FAA and all this other crap. I think it's time for a change. I think we should maybe consider putting aside petty partisan differences and threatening to boycott. It's always the left that does this, but the left threatening to boycott companies all the time. You know, we should both sides of the aisle say, you know what, airlines, enough is enough. 
the next time you step out of line, we are going to boycott. This is going to hurt your bottom line, and you're going to have to come up with more customer-friendly policies and stop treating us like short-term prisoners in the sky. Oh, and one more thing. I know that people don't like it when we all look at an event and say, well, I would have been a hero or whatever. I would have run in there and, you know, save the day. But if someone told me, I don't care who it is, take your dog. I'll refer to it in this case as, as one of my family dogs. Take, take, your, take the family dog and put it in a place where it's going to suffocate. They, they could taser me. They could pepper spray me. They could nightstick me. Unless somebody was actually going to take a firearm and threaten to shoot me with it, it's not happening. And I'd have to think about whether I would do it even with a firearm trained on me. That's how I feel about dogs. So that's why this whole story just doesn't add up to me. And it's also just horrific and tragic. All right, we'll be right back. One of the things I like to do on this show is talk to you about stories that are important and should be of high interest, but that you're unlikely to hear much, if anything, about elsewhere. I know that by the time I'm on air with you or you're listening to the podcast, You've had plenty of news programs blaring at you in the lunchroom or maybe at home if you go and watch TV. Uh, So I like to talk to you about things that I think you haven't already been exposed to whenever possible, especially when they deal with U.S. national security. In this case, I want to tell you about Trump and national security as it affects a chip maker. Here's what's going on. President Trump blocked a tech deal that a lot of people are saying is really unusual. This just happened yesterday. Uh, I'm sorry, on Monday. uh, Trump ordered the Singapore-based company known as Broadcom uh, to abandon its $117 billion bid for Qualcomm. This would have been one of the biggest technology deals in history. And the president just quashed it. He's like, this is donezo. You'd think that this would get a bit more attention. Now, it's not being blocked on antitrust grounds. It's being blocked on, quote, credible evidence that the takeover threatens to impair the national security of the United States. Here's what's really going on, or at least what's being reported. I think there's a lot that we don't know that's not yet out there in the public sphere that may well have affected this decision. But the administration put the kibosh on this whole thing because the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, uh, CFUS, C-F-I-U-S, which is an interagency panel that the Treasury Department leads, uh, recommended uh, or, or had several more weeks to make its recommendation here. And that's why this is such a surprise to people. Trump just swooped in and said no. Now, the big issue is that the chips of the future are going to be an increasingly important part of our everyday life. I, of course, don't mean Doritos or those kind of chips. I'm talking about the chips that are in your smartphone or in your uh, smart devices at home. And they are looking to build a 5G network for all those chips to run on. 5G would be 100 times faster than the high-speed Internet that you're currently used to. It would mean that you could download a uh, high-definition movie in seconds. I know a lot of you right now, if you're like me, you maybe download on iTunes 
a movie and it can take, especially if your download, if your upload speeds, oh no, your download speed, sorry, is a little, a little lagging. It can take an hour. It can take a long time. Uh, but the problem is that Qualcomm um, is essential in these processes. And as you can imagine, there will be a lot of national security, just general security implications of this. Now, usually a Singapore-based company, in this case Broadcom, wouldn't raise such red flags. Um, but it may have been the determination of the Trump administration and President Trump himself that when it comes to chip making going forward, especially these kinds of of chips that will go into the electronic devices that are all around us and also the race to be the preeminent digital uh, digital era innovation country, which is what America is now. But China is clearly trying to catch up to us. Um, that's where we had that. That's where there were clear concerns here. Um, if, for example, Broadcom, the Singapore-based company, acquired Qualcomm with this $117 billion bid, what if all of a sudden we didn't like the way that they were running the company? What if they were lagging behind and then major Chinese competitors like uh, Huawei um, were getting a leg up on us? If they became too dominant in that marketplace, all of a sudden, you would have Chinese-enabled smart chips all over the world. Now, you can start to piece together, even without being somebody who goes too deep on the technology, and I put myself in that category. I'm not a technology guy. But you can figure out quite quickly why having Chinese high-tech microchips all over the world, making them dominant in the space and also all the applications that come with that, including military and security applications, would be a major concern for us. I have been saying this for a while, and I'm telling you I will be proven right, but it will just be in years before everyone realizes that what I was saying was right. The theft of intellectual property that China has engaged in against the United States over the last couple of decades will have a civilization-changing effect. There will come a day when China thinks it is able to stare us down as a military and technology equal, and it will largely be because of all the gains they have made through theft and deception and hacking. By the time we all realize that's true, unfortunately, it's going to be too late, and we're going to be staring down the dragon across the table, so to speak. We'll be right back. You know, I'm a big supporter of President Trump. One of the things I really liked about him as a candidate was his vocal opposition to the Iraq war. The idea that regime change in Iraq actually led to unintended consequences. It made Iran stronger and tipped the balance of power in the Middle East. He's appointing people around him who actually still think the Iraq war was a good idea and actually think that we should have a new war with Iran. So I think he's actually appointing people who don't understand American first policy and who happen to be more from the neoconservative camp that always another war or always think America should be involved in another war. Specifically on the CIA director, I oppose her because she believes that waterboarding should be something that we use. And I think America shouldn't be known for torture. And I have members of my family in the military. I don't want... If if they're ever captured right. for foreign countries to think torture is okay. Senator Rand Paul really opposed to uh, Trump's recent 
picks. We, we've talked here about the ouster of Rex Tillerson. I'm going to miss Rex a little bit. I, I was kind of pro-Rex. First of all, the guy's name is Rex. Second of all, he looks tough as nails. So I kind of liked him. Plus, he was the CEO of ExxonMobil, guy's super rich. He's doing it because he thinks he can help the country. He's not doing it because he's trying to sell books, which I think is always a good thing. But then you go to these other picks, the the new CIA director and the new Secretary of State. I want to focus more on the Secretary of State first. And let me say that I have a piece, which I hope you will all read up on the Hill. Uh, it's on thehill.com. And it's Pompeo will clear the air in Foggy Bottom. That's right. I like to think of myself as a wordsmith. So uh, it's, it's a piece that you should check out. I, I make the case about why I think Pompeo's a good choice. I mean, it's nothing that's going to blow your socks off, but it's a pretty well-developed argument, I think, uh, from his background and resume to being in alignment with Trump on key policy issues. So my, my biggest thing is that you've got a guy who needs to be alongside Trump for some very high-stakes diplomacy. And you can't have somebody, you can't have a Secretary of State, if you're Donald Trump, who's going to be going perhaps in the next few months to sit down across from people that are the North Korean delegates, uh, people who are representing Iranian interests, you know, whatever the case may be, whatever Secretary of State meetings, you know, out in the open or behind closed doors he's going to have. You need someone who believes in the mission. You need someone who is, in fact, on board for this view of America and its role in the world. And I think Pompeo's there. Plus, you got a guy who went to West Point, Harvard Law School, ran a successful congressional campaign, was a well-liked CIA director, uh, was well-regarded in the building, even by people who politically did not align with him, and is also able to roll up his sleeves and be a bit of a brawler when necessary with all that D.C. infighting. So I think you've got a really good... Secretary of State here. I also think that the recent history of the Obama administration has shown us that there is not a whole lot to being a subpar Secretary of State. John Kerry was one. Hillary Clinton was one. In fact, Hillary Clinton, I would argue, was even worse than subpar. She was terrible. Why? Because she was. No! Yes. Now I sound like I'm having some kind of an episode here on radio, but I like Hillary to have some representation. It's fair! You know, she likes to appear, and it's been great for the news cycle this week, just to have a little bit of Hillary popping up here and there. Fun for me in the Freedom Hut, but also just good for all of my conservative brethren. It reminds us of what could have been and what would have been had Trump not arrived and chanted, lock her up, lock her up. Uh, nonetheless, the the Pompeo appointment, I think, is good. On the CIA director, you know, I, I, I want to look into this one a little bit more. I'm going to I'm going to be straight up with you guys. I tend not to weigh in that much on some of the uh, upper level politics in the intel community just because I, I don't want to have the eye of Sauron come my way. Uh, the moment that you start being the guy who's like, well, I hate the director, is the moment that you're on their radar in a way that you just don't really want to be. You know, I mean, there's people who say funny stuff to me like, 
Well, they say, you know, you could tell me, but you'd have to kill me. And I'm like, no, that's not a thing. Uh, or they'll say, you know, well, once you're in, you're never really out, right? And I'm like, don't be ridiculous. Except, you know, you sign papers and things that are uh, binding for your whole life. And, and there, there is actually something to that. You know, you, you really don't want to get a call, if you're me, from Langley. And they're like, you know, we just want to talk to you about some stuff. Some of the things you've said recently. So I tend to stay out of that. Uh, I, I don't know anything about, uh, I've never met and don't know, any, I'm being honest with you, don't know anything about the, uh, the new director of the CIA other than what I have read. Rand Paul is very opposed to her because of her uh, alleged role in waterboarding. Yeah, it, it's tough for me to weigh in on that one way or the other because I'm not sure that it's being characterized accurately. And I get the sense that it's probably being very negatively and unfairly characterized. So that's why I, I would I'm withholding some judgment on that. Um, when it comes to some agency things, I, I can be a little wimpy. But that's because I kind of have to be. So there's that. Uh, but I think Pompeo is a good choice. And I, I usually really like Rand Paul and and support a lot of what he says. And I think he's an important voice, not just for the GOP, but for the whole country on this one, I think he's wrong on Pompeo. I think he's being a little harsh on the new CIA director. Uh, but one thing is for sure, my friends, uh, Democrats in confirmation hearings are going to have a field day with this. They're just going to use it as a, as a fundraising tool. I mean, I'm willing to bet you'll actually see congressional emails going out the days of those hearings, specifically citing, you know, we need to stop this evil Trumpism because Trump is like Hitler, you know, something like that. That's what Hillary would say. All right, we'll be back in a few, teams. Stay with me. You know, I'm getting my taxes ready. It's not the most exciting conversation, I know, but it's close of the show. I just want to share with you that my inner Patrick Henry really comes out when I have to just go through receipts and all this paperwork and does this go in this column? Where does this go? Can I write this off? All this stuff. It is such crap and i know that we've gotten this tax cut and we're all supposed to be so incredibly happy and grateful even that our government is giving us back a little more of our stuff i'm somebody who because of the various gigs and side hustles that i've got going on ends up sending the government a check around tax time and i think that's an experience that everybody should have Because when you send the government a check, it's a reminder that they are taking your money. And I think one of the biggest scams going is automatic withholding and the notion that someone like me, I owe the government money before tax day. And and I just also resent the notion that I am forced by law to engage with a system that is inherently unfair and flawed and subject to interpretation and for which there are criminal sanctions you know if you, if you pay your taxes which i do and all of you listening do as well you should never have to think oh gosh what am i going to do if i get an audit but anyone i know and everyone i know who's ever been through an audit is like Oof, it is a painful experience and at the end of it you don't get a high five and a gold star and a good job it's just Well, I guess we're not going to take even more of your money or lock you up this time. I would like to be a tax radical, my friends. I want a flat tax, a fair tax, 
anything but the nonsense progressive taxation system we have right now, uh, which, as you know, is abused all the time. And the reason the tax code is over 70,000 pages long is because of special interests and carve outs and political favors. And there's a word for that that we would use in foreign countries. Corruption. That's why the tax code is over 70,000 pages. I'm going to keep hammering this until we actually get to tax day. But basically, the IRS should be dissolved. I asked Ted Cruz once. He said if he could, he would dissolve it. And the tax code should be one page. That's it. One, maybe two rates. That's it. This is all just garbage. It's just social justice warrior redistributive nonsense dressed up as something else. And with that, let's get into some roll call. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for roll call. You can't see me, but I'm dancing up a funky storm in here. All right, first up in roll call, and by the way, facebook.com slash bucksexton. Please follow the page, and you can send me and the team here messages. Um, First up, Matthew. Great show. You and your crew are putting out some amazing content. When are you going to be in Austin? I just moved out here from California last year. Love the area. If I can, would like to see, meet you and your staff. Shields high. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for the very kind note. I'd love to meet you and your crew as well. Austin trip is being planned, but I don't have a firm date yet. And I will be, for those of you who are Wo Land listeners out in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in just a few short weeks, March 31st, Saturday, March 31st, I will be at Talk Tank at uh, Wo Radio in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Be there for the whole day. I'll be hanging out, chatting with folks, maybe eating some barbecue, some kind of meat. I don't know what it will be, but I'll be there. So uh, do turn out. I'd love to see as much of the team as I can. Newcomers, especially welcome at the uh, Talk Tank event in Fort Wayne, Indiana, March 31st. You can check it out online. All right, next up. uh, Ooh, here we go. Daniel, he writes, hey, Buck, I want to talk to you for a minute about the school walks today. At my school, they told us it was done in honor of the students who lost their lives. But just a few minutes ago, I got a notification from my news app, which unfortunately has all news companies. It was from CBS, and it said hundreds of students in schools are supposed to walk today to protest gun violence. I'd love to walk for those students, but the second they made this political, I was out. So either my school was doing it for a different reason or they were lying to us. I'm proud to say that most of the students in my current classroom didn't leave, but a few did. I personally think that the teachers should be allowed to have a concealed carry, but unknown to the students. If not guns, then certainly tasers. It's something that can quickly and effectively stop an out-of-control gunman. If you ever want insight from a 15-year-old perspective, you can just message me. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your note and uh, for giving us a perspective that we really need today which is uh, that we have to hear from folks who are seeing this with their own eyes. So thank you, Daniel, for sharing your perspective. Great to have a 15-year-old member of Team Buck in 
the House. Jason, next up here. Thank you so much for talking about South Africa yesterday. My wife's uncle was brutally killed three months ago. It seems the world has been silent as we have watched it increase in violence and numbers on his neighbors. And now as his children who are now orphaned are looking at the government, taking the only thing they have left because they are, quote, privileged. Semper Fi and Shields High, OSS forever from Jason. Shout out to the rest of OSS. Well, Jason, thank you. And thank you for sharing that really tragic uh, and and difficult personal story. The media are absolutely not as interested as they should be in covering what is going on in South Africa. And we know it's because social justice warriors in this country take and and transpose their own political beliefs onto social, political, and cultural situations around the rest of the world. Hence, in Iraq, for example, Iraqi Christians, who are a minority that is being targeted for extermination, are still Christian, therefore they're not really targeted minorities. It, It doesn't make sense, but it's just the way that they have trained themselves as ideologues to view the rest of the world as well. We'll keep watching South Africa, though, because it's a story that I think, unfortunately, is only going to get worse. All right. Now we have a note from Angela. And remember, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton to send us your thoughts. Angela writes, uh, hi, last week you mentioned that you had a trapper keeper when in high school. Not trying to make you feel old or anything, but original trapper keepers are now collectibles. No kidding. They are considered vintage. Welcome to the Am I Really That Old Club. Well, Angela, I'm a proud member of the Am I Really That Old Club and the uh, Get Off My Lawn Society. But I can imagine the Trapper Keepers are collectibles now. What people would do with them other than collect them, I have no idea. But I remember that was what you had to have. Because if you didn't have the handout for your geography class and you had to go down and ask a teacher to give you a Xerox quite an ordeal you don't want to lose those papers that's where trapper keepers came in all right next up here uh Bo, he writes i'm with you buck i hate the airlines i flew frequently during the 80s and 90s with very few issues but after 9-11 i've only flown a handful of times completely miserable experiences every time i only fly now if forced to do so i drove all the way to california in 2016 4,008 miles round trip just to see my son. Well worth the extra time spent, plus I was able to carry a weapon. Uh, Well, Bo, thank you so much for calling in. I really appreciate hearing from you on this one, and I hate the airlines as well. Um, And I generally try not to pick on any one business, but I've just had too many days ruined and you know, there's just not a culture of like, we're sorry, we're ruining your day. They're like, that, you know, that's tough. Oh, we didn't we didn't put enough fuel in the plane to get you to your destination. So we're going to have to have an additional unplanned stop just because we were trying to, you know, scrape around the edges and make a little extra cash at your expense. Sorry. Yeah, that actually happened to me. And these are the things that airlines do. And it's just a disgrace. It's because they don't feel the real impact from the market for a whole bunch of reasons. And yes, airlines are the worst. All right, I'm going to close it up there for today, team. I'm looking forward to joining you tomorrow. Oh, Friday, I will be on the show outnumbered 
at 12 Eastern, 12 p.m. Eastern on Fox News. So uh, do tune in or set your DVR now for Friday, outnumbered on Fox News. That'll be a whole lot of fun. And uh, until then, my friends, you have your mission. You have your orders. No matter what comes your way, shields high.